What's up, folks? Horrorphilia Jason, and welcome to my best favorite top, whatever you want to call it, horror films of 2021. I will be counting down my top 30 horror films, and plus some um, honorable mentions, and I'm also going to have a segment where I talk about some hidden gems out there. For those who know me, thanks for listening again, and those who have no clue who I am, I've been podcasting for about 12 years myself. I used to run the Horophilia.com website and the Horophilia Network, which we had uh, some badass podcasts such as Exploding Heads Horror Podcast, The Skeleton Crew, No More Room in Hell, and dozens of others over the years. So last year, though, I decided to give up podcasting full-time and shut down the website, took a break, but now I'm back. I don't know if I'm going to be podcasting regularly. But I'll definitely always be doing the end of the year shows. So this is uh, episode number one of Jason Unleashed. It'll be the name of my brand new podcast. Uh, hopefully I'll be doing some more regular content, but we'll see. Maybe it depends on the response I get from this episode. <laughs> but I want to thank uh, Philip Perrin and the Dark Discussion crew for uh, hosting this particular episode. So thank you very much, Philip, and I hope you enjoy. Now, I know I'm late to the game. Pretty much every other horror podcast has released their best of 2021. By now, uh, I did procrastinate a lot. Uh, one of the main reasons I'm so late is because I had more rewatches I had to do this year than any other year, since it was such a competitive year in my mind for <laughs> for my top 30 films. I originally was going to do a top 20 podcast, and then 25, and then I realized... I love a lot of these films, almost the same amount, so I just decided on a, a top 30. Now, is this a good year? Uh, that would depend on what your definition of a good year is. If your definition is a top-heavy year with all-time classics and some other good films sprinkled in, no, that probably wouldn't be a good year. But if you consider a good year where there's a lot of very good movies, a few high-rated, but on average, most films are above average, then yeah, I would consider this a pretty good year. And this is definitely, if you're a slasher fan, this is an amazing year, which I'll get into that a little bit later here. Normally, besides the top 30 or top 20, whatever decided to do that year, I would have like the top 10 slashers and top 10 found footage and other different categories. Uh, I'm going to pare it down a little bit. I'm not going to be as elaborate as I have in years past. It'll be just my top 30, and, and then I will get some honorable mentions and hidden gems for sure. And uh, first, I'll get a little bit into how I rate films. That way, you'll kind of understand when I go through the ratings here. So I'm going to give, uh, basically, each film, I'm going to give a brief description of the film itself, the director, if there's notable actors, uh, give my thoughts on the movie itself, why I picked it, and then at the end, I will tell you where you can watch the film, and I'll give you my personal rating. Now, as far as my rating scale... Uh, it basically goes this way here. If a film is a seven or above, it's a good film. If it's a seven and a half, it's a really good film. Uh, if it's a 7.75 out of 10, that's a really good film. It's borders on greatness. And then anything that's eight and above is great. So eight is great in my definition. Uh, very few films, uh, are warrant a nine or above. And only all-time classics get a 10, which is probably can uh, count on both hands how many films I give a 10 to. So 
I'm a pretty strict rater overall when it comes to rating films in comparison to a lot of other podcasters it seems. Uh, so my example, my seven and a half, maybe other podcasters eight or 7.75 or others eight or eight and a half. But I think you'll get the idea once I go through the films here. So, all right. So without further ado, we'll go ahead and start the countdown and I'll go from a uh, 30 to one. So here we go. Number 30 is Fear Street 1978. The Fear Street series is directed by Lee Janiak who is uh, most familiar of uh, horror fans from uh, directing a film, Honeymoon, from a few years ago. Now, uh, 1978 was part two of the three-part Netflix event. Now, I saw the very first two uh, movies back-to-back, and then I waited to the following week to watch part three. Uh, so, if you're not familiar with the series, it is basically a supernatural slasher series. In this episode, this particular uh, movie has an obvious ode to early 80s slashers such as Sleepaway Camp, The Burning, Friday the 13th. Uh, what I liked about it, it had a solid characterization. Uh, I liked the characters, the relationships. Uh, there is the twist that was in the film at the very end that was revealed. I did like the twist, but I did have a few problems with it. It almost is the same uh, issue I had with the Black Coats Daughters kind of twist reveal. Uh, really similar, put it that way here. Um, but this film is excellent slasher. I love the brutal kills, uh, the killer. Uh, it had a lot of uh, great stuff going for it. So maybe watching again, I could have possibly bumped it up some. Uh, this is almost tied of me part one. I do like part one a little bit better than this. But who knows, upon rewatch, I could like it. But overall, it's a fantastic series. Um, I did rank the first and the best, this one second best, and then the third one third best. So they did go down slightly in quality from film to film, but overall it's a fantastic series. So, uh, Netflix definitely needs to do more stuff like that, and hopefully they'll have some more Fear Street movies come down the line. All right, so moving on to my number 29, and this one uh, was a film I got uh, listening to the Exploding Heads Horror Podcast. And Dave Z in particular, he picked a found footage film, and it is called Howard's Mill. And this film, this documentary, full documentary, is directed by Shannon Hutchins, uh, which he is basically the writer of Jay and Silent Bob Reboot, and this is his directorial debut. All right, so what is this film about? Uh, basically, this film starts off interviewing a man, uh, him and his wife, they go out to Howard's Mill, I guess this is farm, I, think, I don't know if they say, maybe Kentucky, I can't remember, but it's a farm somewhere out in the country, and him and his wife, uh, one of their uh, activities they do together is go uh, metal detecting, so him and his wife are metal detecting uh, on this property, they split up, uh, she goes over some hill, and he goes to find her, and she's all of a sudden missing, can't find her anywhere, he goes searching for her for hours, Eventually call the cops, they go searching for her for days, and her body is never found. So this documentary focuses on this man primarily, uh, trying to figure out what could have happened to his wife. And then when you find out the history of this particular location, you find out that the other people have gone missing. Uh, there's even a, a whole family went missing one time, and once even a little girl uh, was found. Uh, came out of the blue, out of nowhere. Uh, she's walking down the road, coming from Howard's Mill. Is a faux documentary with uh, interviewing different people 
trying to figure out what could have happened to these people. A hidden killer with hidden tunnels underneath the land. Is it aliens? Uh, it could be something more supernatural or sinister. Uh, I would say if you presented this documentary to the average person that had no clue that uh, this is a fake movie, I would say it would probably fool the majority of everyone. 90% uh, of the film actually felt like a legit documentary. Uh, the only, I think the uh, there is a tipping point, though. Probably about 20 minutes left in the film. It takes a left turn in the story. And then a majority of people can guess, oh, okay, that's not a real movie. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to get into uh, spoiler territory, but there is something that happens where it uh, kind of leads you away from uh, could possibly happening. Now, there is two minor complaints for me in the film. Number one, there is a musical montage of the, uh, the main guy of the film and his wife, their relationship, and he basically... Uh, no, I'm, I'm not going to spoil it, but anyway, there is a, a montage of music towards the end and showing him and his wife pictures of them together. Um, I guess him mourning her loss type of things with memories. Uh, borderline cheesy. I didn't like that, that at all. It was kind of, yeah. Uh, well, I guess I can't say cheesy. I guess uh, what the kids now say, to, uh, as my kids would say, it's cringe. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if uh, cringe sounds like it's pretty bad, but... Anyway, it is borderline cheesy, I'll put it that way. And plus, uh, the ending didn't quite satisfy my curiosity. Uh, there are tons of questions that are answered throughout the film, but there is no final resolution, I guess. Uh, it's kind of a spoiler, but it doesn't resolve like how you would think it would resolve. So I do have a minor issue with that. It's not a big deal, and maybe upon rewatch it won't bother me as much. But who knows? I don't know. But that this one I didn't get to rewatch because it was right at the very end. as one of the final watches I watched. Uh, I will warn you, though, it has a terrible, terrible fucking cover art. Um, you can watch this film over on Tubi for free. And the photo art that's on Tubi. And if you search it on Google to look at more information on this movie, there's an alternate turn, um, alternate artwork, which I believe is probably going to be used for the DVD. It's even worse. Uh, oh, my God. Both of the first one, the one you see on Tubi, is like a girl that's in uh, a picture of a girl, and there's like strings that are all around her, kind of like a crime board scene, crime scene board, whatever you call it. It's, it's cheap looking, terrible font. And then the other uh, artwork, which, like I said, I believe is going to be for the DVD, looks like makes it look like it's a zombie film. You have the zombie hand coming out this far in the background. Oh, man, both of them look god-awful, so just disregard that. So, if you're a faux documentary fan, uh, then I do give it a uh, high recommendation. And I did forget to rate Fear Street. It is on Netflix, of course, and Fear Street is a 7.75 out of 10. This film is on Tubi, and I also rate it the same, 7.75 out of 10. All right, now moving on to my number 28 film. And for this film, uh, I've heard very little to nothing from other people. I don't know if they just didn't like it or they didn't get to watch it. Uh, but as you can see, I enjoyed it quite a bit, and it is a film called Held. And the directors are, it's two, uh, two directors here. Travis Clough and Chris Loffing, and they are known as the producers of The Gallows 1 and 2, <laughs> which is uh, not high praise going into it, but this uh, that's mainly what they're known for, but they decided to do the, uh, direct their own film. And here's a synopsis. 
A couple's ailing marriage is put to the test when they are held hostage in an isolated vacation rental by an unseen voice that commands their every move. Uh, I personally love this type of captive in a single location type of film. Uh, this couple, they rent out this vacation home. They get knocked out. They wake up. And basically it's a big game for an unseen torturer. Uh, what they... Uh, find out ends up happening is when they were knocked out that they injected these um uh, man it's hard to explain i guess kind of like a hearing aid bomb type things behind their ear and if they don't do what the voice says over the uh over the microphone then he can push a button and it vibrates and does a loud noise and i guess it's painful makes your ear bleed i don't know exactly how it works they have to do what the guy says otherwise the pain is so unbearable so as you can guess, uh, the torture has them for a specific reason, so secrets are revealed, and the couple, despite strain on the relationship, they're either going to bend to the will of the captor, or they're going to try to find a way to escape. I uh, won't spoil what happens, but there is really solid acting. There are some uh, definitely brutal moments in the film, and an above average ending, and uh, I think this also has a pretty damn cool twist reveal. Overall, it was a uh, fast-moving, fast-paced, uh, really good watch. If you're into these type of films, and it is definitely a high recommend. And this is another 7.75 out of 10. And this uh, can be watched uh, on Hulu. Alright, now moving on to number 27. Uh, now this film is borderline, whether you can call it a horror film or not. What I did was this year, I was more liberal with the usage of horror films. I'm going to have two or three that a lot of people may not consider to be horror. What I went by is, if you, uh, is the definition of IMDb. So when you go look up a movie, at the top it has categories that it falls into. It'll say like comedy, thriller, horror, etc. Uh, if one of the subgenres said horror on it, uh, I went ahead and it became eligible for my list. And this is the first film on my list that a lot of people may not consider to be a horror film but it's definitely horror enough in my opinion and that is the trip and this is written and directed by tommy Wercola, uh which is the name sounds familiar he directed dead snow one and two and i didn't even know this film existed but i uh, when i heard the 22 shots of moods and horror podcast uh, moods talked about the film and that's how it's known about it so i watched it and i agree it's a fucking fun film so what is it about? Here we go. A dysfunctional couple head to a remote cabin to reconnect, but each has intentions to kill each other. Before they can carry out their plans, unexpected visitors arrive and they face a greater danger. Alright, so that may sound like good spoilers to you, but that hell that's written in the synopsis. This is the very first film on my list in the past few years. I wouldn't have put it on a horror list. Um... But, as I said, I'm going a little bit more liberal in my definition this year because the film is definitely very brutal and gory in parts. Um, now, the humor in the film, you know, because like I said, it is listed as a comedy. It's kind of a black humor. It's based mainly on the violence that's happening along with some of the stupidity of the convicts. So, to get a little bit more into the story, this husband and wife, she is an actress and he's a director. Um, and I guess they're not doing good. As far as their careers, it's not going quite as they planned. So they're going away for the weekend, and I guess they're sick and tired of each other, and they're planning on killing each other. 
And before that could happen, though, uh, there's also three convicts that had earlier escaped, and they end up showing up. So the five of them, basically, uh, once the five of them get introduced to each other, then all hell breaks loose. Uh, so it's a pretty damn interesting journey that these characters take. They go from the husband and wife wanting to kill each other to going to realize how they feel for each other, and then finally wanting to save their relationship at all costs. There's one, uh, let's just say, Deliverance-inspired scene in particular that I thought was really well done. So imagine basically like one of the Coen Brothers' more goofy films, but much bloodier. Uh, so yeah, it's a lot of fun here. Solid acting, dialogue, and some really good gore. And the uh, ending is a solid ending, and I really love the coda. The very last cherry on top moments right before the credits roll had me smiling. Uh, so this is a film you can watch on Netflix, and this actually stars uh, Numi Rapace, uh, which she actually did Lamb, too, so she was busy this year in the horror front, and also Blood Red Sky. All right, so 7.75 out of 10, and it's on Netflix. All right, moving on to my number 26 film of the year, and it is The Medium. And the director for this is Bang Jong Pistaternikun. And I know I butchered that, uh, but he is, if you're not familiar, he is the director of possibly the greatest Asian horror film of all time, the original Shudder. Plus, he did a horror film called Alone, which I really like. And he does two amazing segments on these horror anthology films called Phobia 1 and 2. And in Phobia 2, his uh, short story in there is one of my all-time favorite horror shorts. If you have a chance, I have no idea whether to stream it or you have to purchase them, but if you have a chance to watch Phobia 1 and 2, uh, those are definite, definite recommends. They're Thailand, they're Thai uh, horror films, horror anthologies, and um, this director does uh, one episode on each film. And Anyway, the one in the second film is just fucking mind-blowing amazing. It's, <laughs> like I said, one of my all-time favorite horror shorts. So this guy has uh, talent oozing out of his ass. Alright, now this particular film is a Thailand and South Korean collaboration. Uh, and here's a brief synopsis here. A horrifying story of a shaman's inheritance in the Isan region of Thailand. What could be possessing a family member might not be the goddess they make it out to be. Alright, so this is a pretty unique story. Uh, this family of women, and well, I guess there's a few men, but there's... Uh, basically focuses on the women of the family. They worship this goddess, and the goddess, I guess when they reach a certain age or maturity level, I have no idea, but this goddess is supposed to, I guess, speak to them or possess them, and then the women continue on the shaman tradition. Um, now, the teenage daughter, Nim, she is uh, starting to be possessed by something, but it is something obviously evil. It's not this goddess that they worship. That's a brief synopsis. Uh, I'm probably fucking it up here. That's what I got out of it, though. Uh, now, the biggest flaw of this film, why it's not ranking any higher than it does, is how long it is. I agree with Christian from the Exploding Heads War podcast. He mentioned that uh, could I think he said 20 minutes could have been cut, and I agree with him. I believe towards the end of the second act, before the third act, uh, there is, in my opinion, kind of repeat. It gets repetitive. Uh, they could have easily cut that out to make this movie flow better. But once you get to the third act, uh, which the third act starts with a pretty shocking moment that I definitely was not expecting here. 
And then uh, from that point, once you get that reveal to the very end, man, it's just balls to the wall. It's crazy, uh, crazy goodness here. But uh, yeah, uh, it's a high, highly recommended film. I thought it was uh, one of the best Asian horror films of the year. So I definitely recommend checking it out. It is on Shudder. And once again, it gets a rating of 7.75 out of 10. All right, moving on to number 25. This is another film. I've heard very little to nothing about it. Um, I started to see a pattern on some of the films I didn't hear much about. Uh, they were either like on Hulu or some not quite as popular service, or they were uh, pay, VOD pay, and they, they didn't have any type of free rentals through any kind of app. And that's the case of this next one. I don't believe it was ever free. It's an Amazon Prime rental for $2.99. So in my opinion, that's definitely worth the money, of course, but but that might be one reason why this film uh, didn't get more recognition. And without further ado, this film is called The Girl Who Got Away. This film is written and directed by Michael Morrissey. Uh, it stars Lexi Johnson. She plays a character called Christina Bowden, uh, which the uh, this actress sure reminds me quite a bit of an older Allison Lohman from Drag Me to Hell. I had to look it up on IMDb just to make sure it wasn't the same girl here, but she highly <laughs> highly reminds me of her. All right, so the film is about a female serial killer escaped from prison to go after the one victim that got away. All right, so the film starts off with a pretty cool sequence here. Uh, you have an, uh, this guy driving in his truck down these country roads in the middle of the night. He sees an older woman all bloodied running down the road. He's like, fuck that. Uh, he he doesn't pick her up. He just passes her by. Shortly after, uh, running down the road is a little girl. So he stops his truck to pick up the little girl. Um, and the little girl, you know, tells him the lady's chasing after him. So he goes to search for the uh, the lady. Uh, the older lady uh, pops up and starts to attack the car and tries to pull the little girl out of the truck. Um, the, uh, the man comes up behind her and knocks her out. Fast forward, it's 20-something years later. And the little girl that was rescued has now grown up. She's a teacher in that small town that she came from. So as the story unfolds, you find out that she was kidnapped by that lady. And that lady would also steal other little girls in town and keep them, I guess, kind of as slaves. And I guess well, after a short period of time, after she's done with them, she would eventually kill them and bury them. Uh, there was um, five girls. Four of them were killed. And Christina was the only one who ended up escaping. So we see in a series of flashbacks, if you know how all this happened. Uh, now, though, the uh, the lady is being transported in some type of van, and the van crashes, and the lady escapes. It doesn't show any of that. Basically, hear that from the sh the local sheriff here. Uh, so that's what the film is about: is the local sheriff is a guy named Jamie. He's kind of new on the job. Uh, him, he tells Christina, you know, he doesn't have the manpower to guard her 24 hours, so he'll do it himself just in case that lady comes looking for revenge. Um, now, throughout the film, bodies do start to pile up. People are starting to die, people that Christina uh, knew. Uh, but there's no possible way that the killer could have known about these people. So it's kind of a whodunit, uh, what's going on type of mystery uh, to the film. Uh, cool flashback sequences of, of the little girls. They're very well timely paced. There are some really cool secrets that are eventually re revealed and a twist I didn't see coming. Uh, my only real complaint 
is the ending of the film is a little cliche and it feels more commercial feeling as opposed to the indie drama film or the rest of the movie. Now, the, now don't get me wrong, I'm going to say indie drama. It definitely doesn't feel like a lower budget movie. It has high production values, but the way the story flows, it, it feels more like a definitely like an indie drama more than a horror film. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely some horrific shit that happens here. Now, there's much more to the movie and story I'm not going to reveal. Um, there is a lot more to the previous sheriff that used to live there and his the previous sheriff and his connection to both the new sheriff, Jamie, and Christina. So there's a lot of strong character building, uh, especially between Jamie and Christina, and a lot of really good dialogue in the film. So it is a dialogue-heavy film. It is a little bit long, but in my opinion, it doesn't feel long because of the way it's edited and it flows very well. Uh, so yeah, it's a high recommend. Amazon Prime for $2.99, and it's another 7.75 out of 10. All right, now moving on to number 24. And this was a film I actually saw through a film festival uh, originally, but it was eventually re, uh, listed. It was eventually released on streaming, and it is Gaia. And it is directed by Jacob Bauer, who is primarily a TV director. I think this is his first full-length debut uh, feature film. And it is a South African production. And here is a synopsis. An injured forest ranger on a routine mission is saved by two off-the-grid survivalists. What is initially a welcome rescue grows more suspicious as a son and his renegade father reveal a cultish devotion to the forest. Alright, now this is the best eco-horror film I've seen in quite a while. Uh, it's basically a creature feature movie that's uh, deeper than what it initially seems. Um, as I read, the film starts off, you have these forest rangers, they're flying a drone through the forest, uh, it gets knocked down, uh, they go look for it, one of the rangers ends up dying, the other one gets injured, uh, the injured ranger, uh, meets a dude and his son that live out in the forest, and she's being taken care of by then, and you find out that there's these creatures in the forest that come out at night, uh, really great atmosphere, solid creature design, uh, most of the CGI is really solid. There's a lot of CGI moments, and I, I would say 90% of it is spot on. There are a few moments here and there, but a majority of it is, is pretty awesome here. And, uh, but so, you know, it is an eco-horror film, so there is definitely a message about nature and man. And you get the reveal of why the characters are there, I thought was pretty awesome. And, and I absolutely loved how the film eventually wrapped up. Basically, it's uh, meaning right before the credits. It is another man-will-be-man moment. Just put it that way here. So I, I really enjoyed how it ended also. And this film can be seen on Hulu. And the rating on this also is a 7.75 out of 10. All right, moving on to number 23. Uh, it is a French production. It is directed by Matthew Turi. He directed a film called Hostile a few years ago from 2017 about a lady that was, I guess, trapped in like a, a Jeep or something, and there's a creature outside, uh, and it is a film called Meander. All right, and here's the synopsis of this one here. A woman finds herself locked in a series of strange tunnels full of deadly traps. Now, I have heard this film on a few other people's lists, so that's good. It's getting some recognition out there. Uh, basically reminds me of a claustrophobic cube. Uh, you have film starts off, a woman is uh, hitchhiking, 
she's picked up by a serial killer. Uh, he knocks her out. When she wakes up, she's in a small metal tunnels filled with these deadly traps, fire, lava, acid, water, and she basically has to compete with the killer. The killer's also captured, and she has to compete with him to try to get to safety before she's injured or dies. You know, there's much more to the story than that, but that's the basic gist of it. It has great gore. There's a really cool mystery of what's going on, what's behind it all. Just a fun uh, film here with a great uh, claustrophobic feel. I personally uh, do get claustrophobia, so man, this film, the older I get, too, it's crazy. I didn't used to have it, but it seems like the older I get, the more claustrophobic I am. Uh, but there is some really good gore, some brutal moments. Uh, you can definitely tell it's a lower budget film. But I think it makes the most out of it, its budget. Uh, cool set pieces. You know, they do repeat some of them towards the end. But uh, but overall, though, it's a solid film. Uh, I love the look of the mechanical helper. Without spoiling, as you will. I thought those are really kind of uh, lo-fi <laughs> uh, thing that they do. Uh, but I think it's like pretty freaky in general here. You'll know what I mean once you watch it here. But the mechanical helper I thought was pretty awesome. All right, so move. Uh, so this can be seen streaming on Amazon Prime, and I do rate it also a 7.75 out of 10. All right, moving on to my number 22 film, and it is another Thailand film, and it is called The Maid. Now the director of this is a guy named Lee Tonkum. And this is actually his third film, but I've never heard of his previous two films. And here's a synopsis here. A teenager, Joy, works as a domestic maid and being haunted by the previous maid spirit, she seeks to discover the secret behind her death. Alright, so this movie starts off like your typical Asian ghost film. Uh, you have a maid uh, that's hired. She encounters a haunted stuffed monkey that runs around the mansion. There's a long-haired ghost woman that scares the shit out of her. Uh, <laughs> she quits the job. Next thing you know, you enter in Joy. She is, uh, I guess, kind of a teenager. She decides to get a job instead of go to college, you find out. So it's, a, it's basically two rich parents. They have a little girl here that, uh, I guess, has some mental issues dealing with things, and they, they have to look after her. And there's also three maids and a caretaker guy that take care of the mansion. Now, once Joy gets employed there, shortly after, Joy does encounter this uh, ghost woman, which was, as you find out, was a previous maid that used to live there. And Joy starts to discover the sordid history of the mansion and the secrets uh, behind the husband and wife and the other caretakers. Uh, absolutely love the way the story unfolded, how the flashbacks are revealed, and ultimately how the film uh, turned, you know, flipped, took a left turn and end up being a revenge film with a bloody final act. Uh, another one I don't want to spoil. I think you should see it for yourself to see how it unfolds, but it's definitely not your typical Asian film. Now, if I do have some complaints, I think the I think the ghost portion of it was pretty typical. Nothing amazing. There wasn't any great you know jump scares or anything you haven't seen before. Um, but the way the film uh, reveals the story of what happened, I think that's clever. And then once you do get the full gist of what the big reveal is and the bloody final act, it all comes together perfectly. So uh, another really fun film, Amazon Prime, and I also give it a 7.75 out of 10. 
All right, moving on to my number 21 film. And this is Last Night in Soho, directed, directed by Edgar Wright. This stars Thomasin McKenzie and Anya Taylor-Joy. An aspiring fashion designer is mysteriously able to enter the 1960s, where she encounters a dazzling wannabe singer. But the glamour is not all it appears to be, and the dreams of the past start to crack and splinter into something darker. Now, this is one of the horror films that can be seen uh, probably with most of your family members, even the ones that don't love horror. Uh, don't get me wrong, it's definitely a horror film, especially how the film ends with the ghost and the damn souls. So it definitely falls into the horror category, even though majority of the film may not seem that way. Uh, now, with all the glitz and glamour and the way the dream slash flashback sequences played out, plus the commercial feel of the movie, it reminded me a lot of, uh, it was like Sucker Punch mixed with Crimson Peak and add in a dash of Moulin Rouge. That's <laughs> the best way I can describe it. Uh, fantastic acting all around. That's uh, definitely one of the highlights of the film. The score is amazing. The lighting is fantastic. So it's a high production value uh, movie in general. One of the one of the best looking technical films of the year for sure. Uh, it is currently out now on uh, disc. I, I recommend purchasing the 4K if you have that. But if you don't uh, want to purchase it, it is out on Prime for 5.99 as a rental. So. Uh, either way, however you can get it, I uh, definitely recommend it. Uh, so this, you know, uh, I'm a big fan of Edgar Wright. So what all this means, in my opinion, his only fault in his uh, in his filmography is that piece of shit Scott Pilgrim. Other than that, he's a badass director. Oh yeah, and I was going to also say if uh, some of these films, after I finish reviewing them, if I find out uh, another film that would make a, a great double feature with, I would mention it. And uh, so, as I mentioned here, so there is moments that remind me of Sucker Punch, the dream sequence type things, and also Crimson Peak. So if you want to uh, double feature it with Crimson Peak, that would work together. If you wanted to go more the non-horror route and, you know, do a double feature with Sucker Punch, I think uh, both films would go together. And moving on to my next two films, and I am actually would say the next two films actually go together. They'd make a great double feature back-to-back. And what I also mentioned is both these films are also featured on Shudder, which uh, Shudder fucking knocked it out of the park in 2021. Uh, previously, you know, some people had asked me, do I think Shudder's worth the money? I would say subscribe to it for a month, binge watch what you can, you know, towards the end of the year, do the same thing. But I think Shudder is now to the point where they have enough subscribers that they're getting enough original content every month that is definitely worth a subscription. And the next two films prove it here. So both films are on Shutter here. And I'll go ahead and just get my rating out of the way here. Both films also rate identical, 7.75 out of 10. So first, my number 20 film is Hunted. This is directed by Vincent Perinod. It is a French production. What started as a flirtatious encounter at a bar turns into a life or death struggle as Eve becomes the unknowing target of a misogynistic plot against her. She's forced to flee as two men pursue her through the forest. She's pushed to her extreme while fighting to survive in the wilderness. But survival isn't enough for Eve. She will have revenge. <laughs> Another fantastic little talked about film. Uh, as I read in the synopsis, this woman 
uh, meets a guy at a bar. She gets captured by these scumbag guys. They uh, have her held hostage in a car. They're on their way to uh, rape, torture, kill her, I'm sure. And they end up getting into a car crash. And when the car crashes, she ends up escaping out of the trunk. Now, now the characters are kind of stereotypical. We've seen them before. You have this leader guy. He's a smart, ruthless dude. And he has a mentally challenged sidekick. And they're both uh, chasing after this woman. She runs through the woods. She does encounter some other people. Uh, end up, you know, basically being collateral damage. The scene involving the other people she meets so is, is pretty awesome. So, so far, you know, it sounds like a bunch of other films you may have seen before. But what makes this film uh, recommendable is the stylistic and brutal third act. You'll know when that moment occurs once the paintball gunners show up. I just put it that way. So once you see the paintball gunners, from that point on, it's a brutal game of cat and mouse to the very end. Basically, the character, it's one of those flip the switch moments. The character has had enough. She goes into uh, wild beast mode. <laughs> put it that way here. And the entire third act is just fucked up brutal battle between these characters really fun film i would say uh if you give it a chance if you watch the first 30 minutes and you don't like it uh i would say hang in there a little bit just give it a little bit further and then once you get into the movie makes the whole film worth it all right now the other film like i mentioned would make a good double feature is number 19 is violation and this is written and directed by dusty mancinelli and also written by Madeline Sims Fewer, and it also stars Madeline Sims Fewer. Oh man, this is going to be the most controversial film on my list. Uh, not because of what it is, but probably because of what I'm going to say. <laughs> uh, uh, man, uh, man, I don't even know how I'm even going to uh, review this here without trying to piss people off here. Alright, so what this film is about is a troubled woman. She's on the edge of divorce, returns home to her younger sister after years apart. But when her sister and brother-in-law betray her trust, she embarks on a vicious crusade of revenge. As I read, your main character, which is excellently played by one of the writers, Madeline Sims Fewer, Madeline and her husband, uh, you can tell they're having some type of marital problems. Uh, they go and visit her little sister and the brother-in-law at this, I guess it's a cabin, I guess they have a cabin on the lake. I, w I really wasn't sure if that's where the sister actually lived or they all just went on vacation there. I wasn't 100% sure. It doesn't really matter. But anyway, so after one night of drinking and relaxing around the fire at the lake house, uh, the next morning, something seems to be disturbing Madeline. Uh, apparently, at least in her mind, her brother-in-law raped her. I, the reason I say apparently is because there are flashbacks to what happened that night, but I don't think it's quite as black and white as you're led to believe uh i honestly don't know if that was the director's intention but at least it was presented that way to me um uh, so oh man and when i say I, I know some people are out there it goes wait a minute there's either rape or not rape there's no gray area and i would say you're wrong here i, I think there's definitely room for gray areas when it comes to this and, and I'm going to say this, rape is despicable. Uh, I don't agree with it at all. I do think it's a very, very despicable crime and it should be punished harshly. So getting that out of the way, I still think that everything is not, even in real life, is not quite as black and white as you're led to believe. 
Um, so what? So in this film, like I said, the least the way it's presented, uh, it makes you wonder. And so since you're wondering, that makes the revenge portion of this film even more disturbing. It is a film that really makes you think. Um, like I mentioned, when is the moment rape is really considered a rape? What is a worthy punishment for uh, for the uh, the rapist? Uh, all of these questions are kind of packaged in a really well acted and at moments a graphic film here. There are some parts that are pretty damn graphic and there's some uh, hardcore male nudity. There's, I don't think any, very few female nudity if at all, but there's definitely some, <laughs> some male nudity uh, in here. But uh, I'm just going to leave it at that if someone wants to get, if someone wants to message me and and get my opinion more on why I think uh, it's it's a great area in this movie and other situations. I'll get into it, you know. I'll go back and forth with you on here, uh, but I won't get to it on the on the on this uh, review here. Uh, let's just say it's a uh, really graphic film, well acted, and it makes you think. And both these films uh, do have a similar type of film, this and Hunted. So this would make a great double feature, and I rate them both, like I said, 7.75 out of 10, and watch them on Shutter. All right, number 18 on my list is The Deep House. And this is directed by Alexandra Bastillo and Julian Murray, which, of course, they are the duo that did Inside, Livid, the Leatherface movie, and even uh, from 2021's film, Candisha. It is obviously a French production. And here's the uh, brief synopsis here. A young and modern couple who go to France to explore an underwater house and share their findings on a social media undergoes a serious change of plans when the couple enters the interior of a strange house located at the bottom of a lake and their presence awakens a dark spirit that haunts the house. Alright, so this is basically a haunted house film mixed with a claustrophobic underwater movie. Uh, as I read, you have these... Uh, Boyfriend, girlfriend, they're YouTubers. They go to France. They find this house uh, in this town that was, I guess, flooded. Once they go down there with their equipment, it's it's. They each have cameras, and they also have this uh, drone, this underwater drone that has a camera on it. Once they go down there, they go searching through this house, and instead of what you normally would see, the house being old, rotted, seaweed everywhere. Uh, the the house pretty much it looks looks brand new like it's untouched. Uh, they do end up finding some dead bodies. There are clues to something cultic and much sinister. Uh, overall, a fantastic film movie. The how they did this on a technical level must have been a fucking nightmare. I have no idea how uh, the editor of this film probably <laughs> deserves special recognition. I'm sure they had. So much shit they had to cut out of here to make it a workable movie. But I, I can just imagine, even if you storyboarded this and you went down there and the, they have to communicate underwater to each other, uh, man, it could have been a... I don't. I just can't imagine the nightmare it was to make this film and to make it all cohesive, uh, as they did. Like I said, it's edited very well. All the underwater stuff looked fantastic, too. Now, the haunted house moments of the film, generally creepy moments... Uh, once again, a claustrophobic feel to it, especially when you find out they're running out of water and they, they don't know how to escape this house that adds to the tension of the film. And, uh, and as a plus, the film ends, uh, 
with an untypical ending that you would guess here that I really loved here. Uh, now, there are two ways of watching this film. If you have a subscription to Epix, it is free on there. If you don't have Epix, then you can also get it on Amazon Prime VOD and maybe other services. But I know on Amazon Prime, it's only $4.99. And it is worth every penny of that here. So this uh highly recommend, obviously. It's my number 18 film. And once again, the rating is a 7.75 out of 10. All right, now my number 17 film. I know other people have seen it. I've mentioned it to a few other people, and they weren't they weren't as high up on it as I was. Um, which after because uh, I watched it earlier this year, and then it you know it stayed pretty high up on my list. And then I was like, man, I got to rewatch this here to make sure that I actually liked it as much as I did. And then upon rewatch. Hell, I liked it probably as much or even more than I did the first time. So, uh, it is obviously a good film or film that I like. Alright, and it is called Ankle Biters, a.k.a. Cherry Pickers. It is directed by Bennett de Brabendeer. He is a first-time director. And here is the synopsis. Sean, a pro hockey enforcer, has fallen in love with Laura, a widowed mother of four young daughters. When Laura's children mistake an act of lovemaking as an attack, they plot to protect their mother at all costs and with horrific results. Oh, damn, that's a really <laughs> awesome synopsis. We should have came with that. All right. Now, this film tonally is very weird. It is definitely a black comedy, but it just the elements, even though it's all over the place, it just worked for me. As I read, this woman, Laura... She has four young daughters, uh, which these actresses are all real sisters in real life. I thought that was awesome. I think the girls, if I was to guess, the girls range from probably four years old to nine years old, somewhere in that range. And uh, the story is basically um, Laura falls in love with an ex-hockey player. I guess, like I read, he used to be, a, with, I don't watch hockey myself, but he was a guy that always got into fights. I guess they call those enforcers. So one weekend, Sean is going to propose to Laura. So he takes uh, Laura and the girls out for the weekend at a lake house. Uh, now, early in the film, it is established that the mom, she's into some kinky bondage stuff. So, you, you know, you, there's a scene where uh, she's wearing bondage stuff. He's slapping her and choking her. And they end up making this uh, home sex video. It's not really graphic or anything, but, uh, but you do see that uh, to set up the film here. Now, the young girls, they're very protective of their mom. Uh, they find out Sean's going to propose, so they end up still in the wedding ring. They watch this video that's on Sean's phone, and when they watch the video, they don't understand what the hell's going on. They So they all assume that Sean is torturing their mom. Uh, so the girls plan on giving Sean hell, and they come up with a plan that can get Sean out of their lives forever. <laughs> uh, fantastic acting, once again, by the Real Life Sisters. It's a really fun film with a strong, brutal third act uh, with, it actually has one of the funniest scenes of the whole year. Um, let's just say there's, it involves with someone flying over a guardrail. i just put it that way. You'll know when that moment happens. I was busted out laughing, man. I, I had to rewind that bitch like four times just to watch it. It was, it was, it was fucking hilarious. That was gold. Um, but yeah, man, it's a really uh, fun film. It kind of kind of dark here you know it is a black comedy there's there and what's strange is i would say 90 percent of the film is played straightforward 
And then there are these comedic moments that do happen uh, towards the very beginning of the film and towards some of the end of the film. And I think the, the, the dialogue, some of the little girls are supposed to be funny, even though they play it extremely serious. Um, and it has an ending I'm not sure if I totally love. Uh, but once again, it's a tonal switch toward the very end. You're like, wow, shit, I wasn't expecting that. Um, but yeah, I really like the characters too. I think the girl, Laura, the main uh, actress, she was awesome. She was really relatable. Sean, uh, he was, he was a likable dude. Um, and all the little girls, they were, they were fantastic for their roles. So there wasn't anyone I didn't like in the film. It, it had a lot of, uh, very strong actors in it. And yeah, I, if it, if the synopsis sounds cool to you, I highly recommend it. Uh, like I said, I'm not sure why others didn't like it as much as I did, but I think it's definitely a film worth watching. And this is another one I think might not have got as much recognition is because you had to pay for it. Uh, as of this moment, you can rent it on YouTube for $4 and 99 cents. And I don't know if it's been, um, mentioned yet, whether it's going to be on any other free streaming service. Or if there's a disc release yet, I have no idea. And the film, when it was originally uh, released, I think in the festivals, it was called Cherry Pickers. But then they decided to rename it to Ankle Biters, which, in my opinion, makes much better sense. So uh, this is one time where I agree with the uh, the, the uh, name change. Ankle Biters sounds much better. All right, so moving on to my number 16 film of the year. So we're approaching the halfway point, and it is Benny Loves You. This film is written and directed by Carl Holt. It stars Carl Holt, and it is his debut feature uh, full-length film, and it is a UK production. And here's the synopsis. Jack, a man desperate to improve his life, throws away his beloved childhood plush, Benny. It's a move that has disastrous consequences when Benny springs to life with deadly intentions. <laughs> All right. Now, this is just a really fun, bloody film. I would say something in the vein of maybe even early Peter Jackson. Uh, as I read, you have this dude, Jack. He works for this toy company. He gets an idea from his childhood uh, Elmo doll. I guess it's basically Elmo ripoff. Uh, he decides to make this line of whore dolls wearing different clothing in hopes that, you know, there'll be a big hit and they'll get to keep his job and get a promotion. Uh, he originally threw away the doll and throwing it away, brought the spirit of it to life. So Benny is now like a living, breathing creature that lives with Jack. Uh, and Benny has this warp, twisted mind of his own. He'll basically do anything to keep his master happy. Uh, extremely fun film here. Uh, there is one scene involving where Jack has to babysit, dog sit his boss's dog. And that whole scene goes uh, fucked up when Benny gets involved. Uh, fucking hilarious scene. Just crazy what ends up happening here. Uh, the final bloody act with all the traps that are set up to stop Benny and with the robot assassin doing kung fu matrix type moves. It, just, it is fucking awesome here. Oh, fantastic way to end the film. Now because of the third act, I'm going to recommend pairing this with a film called Drone. They came out, I believe, two years ago, either two or three years ago, and it has a really similar type third act, uh, so I think this would make a great double pairing if you did watch Benny Loves You and back-to-back -back with Drone. But yeah, this film is just pure bliss. I, I was smiling from ear to ear, absolutely fucking loved it. Um, you can watch it if you have Showtime, 
Uh, it is free on Showtime. Otherwise, if you're going to rent it, it is VOD Rental on Amazon Prime. It's $3.99. Definitely worth every penny. All right, so we're halfway through the list. So I'm going to go ahead and take a little break right now, and I'll come back here in just a few minutes. Because the beats be gangster. Bruh. Real gangster. I hopped out the whip, then emptied the clip. They all ran. About to hit the strip with a couple of bricks. And get these bands. Don't know about you, but I only mess with dimes. Took this girl, yeah, she all mine. You step up, you gon' hit the pavement. Where I'm from, my hood so dangerous. Riding around with the strap, looking for the ops. Keep your eyes out for the cops. Then I told my boy, turn the music up. Put that gangster music on. Put that gangster music on. Put that gangster music on. I told him, put your hands up. Give up the cash if you want to see another day. He nodded his head like, yeah. Gave up the bread like, yeah. Tommy Dog gon' fuck him up. All right, now for the top 15 of the year. Number 15 is Vicious Fun, directed by Cody Callahan. It is a Canadian production. Joel, a caustic 1980s film critic for a national horror magazine, finds himself unwittingly trapped in a self-help group for serial killers. With no choice, Joel attempts to blend in or risk becoming the next victim. This is definitely an aptly titled movie. Uh, just a really fun, fast-paced film. As I read, yeah, this guy, Joel, he's in love with his roommate. Uh, but, of course, she doesn't feel that way for him. She gets dropped off. She ends up getting dropped off of a date. Uh, Joel follows this dude to a bar, befriends him. Uh, finds out the dude is a scumbag, just using her and doesn't care about her at all. Uh, Joel ends up getting wasted the night. He tries to leave the bar, and he ends up stumbling into a serial killer meeting. Uh, the serial killers assume that he's one of them because uh, one of them is missing, so they assume he's the missing member. And they gather around a big circle, and the killers are talking about their kill conquest or what annoys them about about their uh, job. And he realizes eventually that the, these guys are serious, so Joel has to try to blend in. Uh, but he does get exposed that he's not an actual serial killer, and then the killers are out to kill him at all costs. So that's a basic scenario setup. Great cast of characters. Uh, you have some known actors here. Julian Richens. Uh, he plays a clown killer. David Ketchner. He's his businessman. Uh, you have this Asian samurai killer dude. A big Jason Voorhees thug type guy. And finally you have the, uh, the main villain of the film. Bob the slick ladies man. He's also the guy who ended up uh, um, banging Joel's uh, roommate here. He's the guy that he followed to the bar. So normally, Joel would be no match for these serial killers, but he is helped by a mysterious female serial killer. That's uh, so a set up the film. They're trying to go, go after him. He's trying to survive the night. Really fun characters. Uh, there's a, end up going to a police station. I thought all the police were over the top, but they are really fun. Uh, just a bloody, gory, really fa fast-paced film. No dead time. I thought the movie flowed at a decent pace. I like how the story revealed. I really like the uh, all the characters in general. I thought they were uh, really well casted, and I like uh, Joel's relationship, especially with the other uh, girl here. Uh, this is another film that is on Shutter, and as you can probably guess, my rating is a 7.75 out of 10. All right, so the next one is also another Shutter film. Damn, there's <laughs> tons of Shutter. 
and it is the Queen of Black Magic. It is an Indonesian production. It is directed by Kimo Stambol, and Kimo is actually one of the Mo brothers, a uh, massive fan of this director's work. You know, they came onto the scene, uh, I guess about a decade or so back with Macabre. I thought that was a really bloody fun, not not too original, but I thought it was a really fun movie. Uh, they did some uh, martial arts action films, Killers, and especially Headshot. Headshot is fucking amazing. Uh, if you haven't seen that, if you're an action film fan and you never seen Headshot, you never definitely need to see that. Especially if you're a fan of the films like The Raid and that type of shit. Uh, he also did another horror film called Dread Out, which I thought Dread Out was pretty fun. It wasn't amazing. I do need to rewatch Dread Out. Um, maybe I like it better on rewatch. I do remember liking it, just not loving it. All right, so here's a synopsis of this. A family travels to the distant rural orphanage where the father was raised to pay their respects to the facility's gravely ill director. But his and his friends' homecoming turn into a terrifying supernatural ordeal that threatens their and their family's lives. Someone is using dark magic to avenge evil deeds, long buried but not forgotten. Stambo's film is a reimagining of the 1981 Indonesian horror classic of the same name. Now, I've personally never seen the original, so I have no idea how it stacks up in comparison to that. Uh, but this film was a really fun, gore-filled, supernatural, possession, ghost film. Has a little bit of it all here. Uh, does have the classic look and feel that Kimo has established in his horror films. Uh, the lighting and the camera work, the do reminded me parts of Macabre. And then all the CGI ghost stuff actually reminded me of, the, of his other film, Dread Out. One of the highlights is it's really well-established, distinct-looking characters that you can tell apart from each other. Now, normally when you have big ensembles like this in foreign movies, and especially if they're not actors you're not uh, used to, who you're, <laughs> you're looking at them here, you can, can get lost on who is who here, but you never have that problem here. You, you know, he establishes uh, pretty quickly uh, who each people are here. Now, the three friends, as I read, the, you have three uh, older adult men. They meet up at an orphanage where they grew up with their families. They travel there because the father figure, the director of the orphanage, he ran the place. He's on his deathbed. Uh, once they arrive, they're being attacked by some type of supernatural presence that seems to want revenge. And no one is safe from the Queen of Black Magic. Uh, not even the new orphan children. <laughs> Uh, I just thought the film was really well paced, a pretty cool story that ends up being revealed. It does have flashbacks to the guy's childhood. You find out exactly why the uh, the Queen of Black Magic is after them. There is also this mystery element of who invited them there and how can they stop the woman. Um, the film does get batshit crazy in the third act. Evil Dead type of shit, beheadings, torture, more. Now, if I do have some um, negatives, there are some dodgy CGI in parts. Uh, but overall, this, uh, the CGI didn't bother me. There's also some great practical gore, and once again, some Evil Dead, Evil Dead-inspired possessed characters that I thought really worked. Uh, yeah, it's a really fun film, really well made, and it's a high recommend on Shudder. Uh, 7.75 out of 10. Surprise, surprise. All right, now moving on to number 13. Now, this film, I had it quite a bit higher for most of the year. And then upon rewatch, I didn't like it quite as much, but it's still awesome enough to finish my number 13. And it is False Positive. It is directed by John Lee. Uh, he's a TV director. His only exception is he did direct Pee Wee's Big Adventure. 
<laughs> so this is the only other movie since then. Um, it stars Alana Glazer, Gretchen Maul, and Pierce Brosnan. As of getting pregnant weren't complicated enough, Lucy sits out to uncover the unsettling truth about her fertility doctor. That's a brief succinct um, synopsis, but it, it wraps it up here. It, now, this is actually an A24 film. In my opinion, it wasn't promoted very well at all. Uh, now, you know there are some horror fans out there who worship at the feet of anything released by A24, uh, but I personally heard little to no fanfare on this movie. Once again, this film is one of the lesser talked about films, and it was released by Hulu. Uh, now, from what I've seen... This film is by far the most mainstream and commercial-looking horror film that I remember from A24. Uh, I would even say the first half of the film almost feels like a typical pregnancy thriller that you'd see on any number of channels. But then, uh, I guess towards the halfway mark, it gets a little bit darker. And while the mystery gets revealed of what's going on with her pregnancy, uh, there is some really fucked-up dream sequences in the film that really work. Now, Pierce Brosnan, he plays a fantastic bad guy with his witty banner and his charm. Uh, <laughs> I think, personally, that Pierce plays a better bad guy than he does a good guy here. He's He's been fantastic since he's left the Bond uh, movies. Uh, Gretchen Maul, uh, she plays the perfect nurse that basically would do anything to protect her doctor. Now, what elevates this film from being just average is the fantastic ending. Uh, it's bloody, brutal, and kind of shocking in a way, which fits the A24 mold. Uh, if you like pregnancy horror, I definitely recommend you should give this a go. Otherwise, I'll be honest, for a lot of people, this is just going to be a mild recommendation. Like I said, I do admit that when I first watched it, I had it a lot higher. I had it probably around 6 or 7 of the year, and then now it dropped down to my 13. So it wasn't quite as strong as I remembered it, but... I'm an absolute sucker for pregnancy horror, and I just think it's an extremely well-done film, but I've heard from other people that just thought it was okay, so <laughs> unless you're a huge pregnancy horror fan, it may be just a mild recommendation for yourself, but I absolutely love it, and it's on Hulu, and once again, 7.75 out of 10. All right, now moving on to my number 12 film. It is a film directed by a first-time director. His name is S.K. Dell, and it is Till Death. A woman is left handcuffed to her dead husband as a part of his sick revenge plot. Unable to be unshackled, she has to survive as two killers arrive to finish her off. Now, plot-wise, this probably is the most simple of all the films I have on my list. Uh, as I read here, you have, basically have a woman. She's cheating on her husband. They end up going out to the cabin for the winter. She wakes up in the morning. Uh, she is handcuffed to him, and he kills himself in front of her. Uh, some robbers slash killers, they arrive at the cabin with her uh, boyfriend, also shows up there. And Megan Fox, she has to maneuver around with a dead man attached to her. She's basically trying to hide and survive the night. Uh, it is a fantastic performance by Megan Fox. Uh, she, not only is she good, I thought she was actually great in the film. She carries the film, and she's pretty much in every, almost every scene of the film, and she definitely carries the film. Uh, my only complaint with the movie is the very ending of the film. I did see how it was going to end. I saw it coming in advance, but I still think uh, it was a really cool ending here. I still enjoyed the film overall. 
man, this is a really well done film. It's one of these films I think has some rewatch value also to it here. And it is uh, on Netflix. It is a 7.75 out of 10. All right, moving on to my number 11 film. And I know I'm going to get a lot of disagreements on this. I've heard no one put this in their top films of the year. Um, and I've heard some people like it, but I've heard some people trash it too. So I know I'm going to be one of the few that has it this high. And it is a film that is directed by Danishka Asterhazy, which um, Danishka also directed Banana Splits. And it is Slumber Party Massacre. It is basically a remake of the original that pays homage, but also manages to subvert your expectations with some unexpected twists. Um, it is basically a black comedy that sometimes works, and gore that really works here. Now, currently, even though I've heard people trash it, it is actually, uh, right now at the moment of the recording of this, it's a 100% on Rotten Tomatoes on the critics, <laughs> which is kind of surprising. Uh, my main criticism of the film, if I have any, is it maybe runs a tad too long. Uh, but other than that, I absolutely love how the film was basically all over the place here. You expect it to be this slashing stock film, uh, but, you know, about a third way through, there is a big twist. Plus one scene, there's this general reversal role, and uh, in particular, that was really funny. I thought it was, I thought it was awesome here. They nailed it. Uh, once the killer is revealed, you still have over half the film left. <laughs> I had no idea where the film was going, and that was a big plus. Uh, fantastic gore, uh, mostly likable, relatable characters. I thought the script was uh, clever enough without going overboard and being too cutesy. Uh, I can easily see, though, where a lot of people wouldn't like this film, though. Um, the comedy in it, I can see how it wouldn't appeal to everyone. I could also see how some people might think that the plot is too convoluted or gets too bloated. Um, and I could even see some people may even not like the end of no, but none of that bothered me. I, I love the uh, kitchen sink approach uh, that they uh, did in the film here. Uh, this is a uh, South African production, which is kind of surprising to me. And you can watch it uh, for free on Sci-Fi Now or Bravo if you have either one of those. Uh, also, it's a rental on Amazon Prime Video. I think it's $3.99 as the current price. And what do you think my rating is on it? Oh, yeah. A 7.75 out of 10. <laughs> Tommy Dog gonna fuck him up. All right, now it's top 10 time. And I actually didn't plan it this way, but starting with my number 10, my ratings start to jump up. <laughs> and yeah, I didn't plan it at all. Just, I just actually noticed that right now for the first time. All right, so this is the top 10. And as a, you know, 11 through 30, those are all same exact rating, 7.75 out of 10. To be honest, some of those could have been interchangeable. Um, who knows? I mean, I like them pretty much almost all the same. Just a few things here and there. I might have pushed uh, one film up above the other here, but I almost like them all equally here. And But the top 10, I guess I do like, you know, a tad bit more. So starting off with number 10. Another slasher film, and another film directed by Lee Janiak, and that is Fear Street, 1994. A circle of teenage friends accidentally encounter the ancient evil responsible for a series of brutal murders that have plagued their town for over 300 years. Welcome to Shadyside. 
So this is the introduction film of the series. I absolutely love the screen style intro of the movie. Um, the story basically, uh, the story of the film shows these two small towns, Shadyside and Sunnyvale, how they're rivals. I uh, love the whole backstory of the witch hanging. The whole lore and universe that's set up in the films, you know, is all basically revealed in this one. Of course, they get more into the story in the other ones and give more reveals here, but the main setup of the plot is in this film. Uh, I love the supernatural twist that it wasn't just a straight up slasher. I love how they uh, brought in a bunch of characters. And what I really liked is the whole blood covering uh, plot point they figure out. I think that led to some great suspenseful moments. Uh, also, there were some surprise deaths I didn't see coming, and the deaths were really mean-spirited and fun. <laughs> uh, I'd like this just a tad more than the 1978 here. Not much more. They're almost neck and neck, in my opinion. I do think part three is a step down from the other two, but I pretty much have these two neck and necks here. So that's Fear Street 94, and I'm, this one actually is getting an 8 out of 10, and of course it's on Netflix. Alright, so now moving on to my number nine film. And this film is one of the films that made me think the longest after I watched it here. I just thought about it and uh, contemplated what the meanings of it. Uh, and I eventually had to look it up and research, do some more information on it. But my number nine is The Night House. Uh, directed by David Bruckner, which he's a guy in VHS. He directed that awesome short amateur night. Uh, he did a segment in the Southbound Anthology, did the one called The Accident, uh, and he, of course, uh, directed The Ritual. And this film stars Rebecca Hall, Sarah Goldberg, and Vondi Curtis Hall. And here's the basic synopsis. A widow begins to uncover her recently deceased husband's disturbing secrets. Just an awesome film, terrific written story that's uh, enhanced by the fantastic acting. Rebecca Hall, she gets my performance of the year easily. She plays this widow who's running through a whole gamut of emotions dealing with her recently deceased husband by suicide nonetheless. Uh, so her interactions with other people, for example, the student's mother and the scene where she first meets the mistress, the, those scenes are just pure gold. Great acting and dialogue. The less you know about this film, the better. I'm not going to get heavy into the plot. Now, some people uh, that I've heard on other podcasts are turned off by what you find out about Rebecca's past and how it impacts the plot of the story. <clears throat> Venom. <clears throat> but I think the concept behind that is so broad, I didn't think that that was ripping off anything in particular. Uh, me, personally, I loved how the mystery is revealed, but it's not spoon-fed to you. Uh, plus, the ending... It could have went a few different ways, but I was totally satisfied of, of how they decided to, to make it unravel. Now, I'll be honest, I didn't fully understand a few things. Even after I watched it twice, I still had some questions. Uh, I did find a, a few articles that I read, one article in particular, where they explain in their opinion of what went down in the film, their interpretation of what happened. It's a fantastic article, made me think and realize a couple of things I might not have realized here, so... Uh, I think I pretty much agree with the majority of what they decided, what they stated in the article. So I will, uh, if I do some uh, detailed show notes, I will reference that in there. So look for that in the show notes. Uh, but this film is actually a rental currently. It's on Prime Video for five ninety nine. Um, I don't think it's made it quite yet to a stream, a free streaming service yet. 
but it's uh, 8 out of 10 and an awesome film, The Night House. Now, moving on to my number 8 film of the year. First off, I was highly looking forward to it, and I'll explain that in a moment here. This is one of the films I contemplated whether I should put it on the list because of whether it's not a horror. For example, on Amazon Prime where you can um, purchase it, rent it, they have it under suspense, comedy, and art house. But once again, I went by the IMDb ratings, uh, their category ratings, and IMDb has it listed as comedy, horror, thriller. So I went ahead with that, and that's what made it eligible for my list. And it is the beta test. Now, this film is written, directed, and stars Jim Cummings and P.J. McCabe. I was 100% stoked when this came out. And the main reason is because uh, Jim Cummings starred and directed in my favorite horror film of last year, The Wolf of Snow Hollow. And if you've never seen that, man, get on this ASAP. Push, stop, pause, whatever the fuck you do, and go watch that film and come back here. But here's what the beta test is about. An engaged Hollywood agent receives a mysterious letter for an, anonym, for, for an anonymous sexual encounter and becomes ensnared in a sinister world of lying, murder, and infidelity in the scintillating satire. Jim is a Hollywood agent that has a good relationship uh, with a beautiful fiancé, but he can't get this mysterious letter out of his head. He's consumed by it. He has his chance to bang someone anonymously. He finally decides to meet her blindfolded in a hotel room. Uh, he bangs the shit out of her, but he leaves without never ever finding out who she was. And then he becomes obsessed into finding out who it was here. So the film is tackling a few different things here. The mystery of who actually sent these letters out. Who is the hot chick he banged. And how is it connected to the murder that happened in the cold open of the movie? Besides this film being super entertaining, there are th- there are total there are tons of themes you can get out of this film here. Tons of on- uh, themes of honesty, misogyny, the Hollywood a dirty scene. I just love that it tackled all these themes here. You could latch on to what you want, disregard what you want, but I thought it had a lot to say here. Uh, my favorite thing about the film. Just like the Wolf of Snow Hollow is Jim Cummings just being Jim here. He's one of these actors that most likely, you know, like 90% of actors, they have one style that they uh, excel in and they do bring that to pretty much most of their movie roles. And his character in this film and the one in Wolf of Snow Hollow are extremely similar. No one can break down mentally like this dude does whenever he gets mad and pissed and um, it's hard to explain. You just got to see what I'm talking about here, but he has these expressions on his face and you can just, you can just see what he's thinking in a few scenes, put it that way here. He's just super entertaining actor to say the least. And I thought the film had a really solid ending. Uh, I had no idea, no clue of how the story was going to unfold. And once it did, uh, it's nothing I would have ever guessed in a million years, but I was still, Still totally satisfied of how the film end. Uh, so this would make a great double feature with The Wolf of Snow Hollow. Uh, fantastic film, man. It's an 8 out of 10. My only reservation on this is you can only, at this exact moment, purchase it for rental. Or I guess, I guess it wouldn't be a rental if you purchase it. But anyway, you can purchase it on uh, digitally on Amazon Prime for $14.99. Uh, I don't know if it's uh, streaming anywhere else for free at the time of this recording. It's not. I don't know if it's planned to be on a streaming service soon. 
so that's really the only way you can see it is slap down 15 bucks. And I'll be honest, I can't recommend any, even my number one film, I wouldn't recommend uh, purchasing it for 15 bucks sight unseen. That's just way too much money here. I would definitely wait till it becomes a, a rental at least, or if you can pick it up cheap, cheap on disc, <laughs> maybe that's the best way to go here. But I recommend Jim Cummings. And if you're saying who the fuck is Jim Cummings, most people would recognize him actually from Halloween Kills. In the 1978 scenes, he's the cop. He's the main sheriff guy that ends up getting shot in the neck by his partner. Uh, that guy, that asshole guy, he plays the same like asshole guy type character in everything he does, man. He's a master at it. Uh, but that's that's Jim Cummings. He's a awesome uh, director, actor. Definitely can't wait to see what he does next. All right, now moving on to my number seven film. It is We Need to Do Something. This is directed by Sean King O'Grady. He's uh, normally a documentary director, and this is his first narrative feature film. And this stars Sarah McCormick, Vanessa Shaw, and Pat Healy. After Melissa and her family seek shelter from a storm, they become trapped. With no sign of rescue, Melissa comes to realize that she and her girlfriend, Amy, might have something to do with the horrors that threaten her family. Alright, this is literally a film in one location movie. As I read, there's this big storm that happens outside. And this dysfunctional family of the father, played by Pat Healy, the mother, a teenage daughter, and a young son. They're all trapped in a pretty damn spacious bathroom. It's a nice bathroom, at least. Uh, a tree falls through their roof and traps, uh, traps them in there. Basically, you have the slow mental breakdown of the family. They're trying to do their best to try to escape, but to no avail. Uh, there's family infighting. Secrets are revealed. True emotions are revealed. While they're dealing with uh, fighting against each other, they also have to deal with a snake that sneaks in. They end up getting a visit from a freaky visitor. Uh, really freaky. And then you end up getting, basically, while this is going on, it uh, unveils the backstory of how the teenage girl and her girlfriend most likely uh, brought on these horrific events. Uh, which is a pretty straightforward story. There's no really elaborate plot to it. Now, the last act of the film does get a little bit batshit crazy, and when the film turned from good to great is the whipping scene. I'll just put it that way. Once you see the whipping scene, I had a smile on my face. At that moment, I knew I loved this movie. Now, I'll be honest, uh, I'm not sure if I totally understand everything that happened in the third act and what it symbolizes, uh, but it didn't matter. It's one of these films that you don't have to dig deep into it if you don't want to. Just enjoy it for what it is. Uh, but those who want to dig deeper, I'm sure there's a lot of different themes and messages you can get out of it. But it's another film that's on Hulu. Don't sleep on Hulu. And it's another uh, 8 out of 10 for me. All right. Now moving on to my number six film of the year. It is The Advent Calendar, written and directed by Patrick Richemont. Uh, it is a, a production out of France, Belgium, Luxembourg, and here's a synopsis. Eva's a paraplegic. On her birthday, her friend Sophie gives her a strange advent calendar. It's not the traditional treats you find when you open each drawer, but quirky gifts that are scary and get bloodier. Now, this is one of these films I'd almost bet my left nut will eventually be an American remake, or at least a ripoff with a similar plot sooner than later. Uh, I can just imagine someone 
some American producers fucking this up with uh, casting American teens and CGI kills. <laughs> I can just see it now here. Now, the main actress, Eugenia Durand, I believe, as Eva, she was fantastic. The story, she's an ex-dancer who was in some type of accident and becomes paraplegic. Uh, she also has a father that's dying. He has Alzheimer's and a wicked stepmother who doesn't want her interacting with him. Uh, Eva does live on her own with her, well, with her dog here. And she has a good friend that ends up coming back from Germany with this wooden advent calendar present for her. Uh, each day she opens a calendar. There's a different chocolate to eat with. And it gives you type of some type of clue of what may happen to her. Uh, Eva does have some fantastic things starting to happen. Good things. Uh, but also mysteriously evil people in her life are starting to die around her. The advent calendar basically can't be stopped. And she has to follow the rules till the end of it all. Or the creature behind this uh, advent calendar will make her suffer. Uh, it's just a well-written, really well-acted film. Uh, each day uh, that the character opens these clues, you have no idea what's going to happen. Now, all things do come with a price, but it's cool to see how far Eva's going to take it. I personally love the religious imagery and the candy and the clues given. I uh, also like how the uh, this evil creature interacted with other people. Uh, there's one scene in particular. It's a beautiful scene, really extremely well done. It's where Eva swimming in a swimming pool while at the same time her boyfriend is uh, swimming in a lake and they have kind of a crossover moment here. I'm not going to spoil it, but it was, it was pretty awesome here. It looked fantastic and just a fantastic uh, choreographed scene. Uh, some people may have a problem with the CGI creature, but I personally dug the look of it and I actually liked what the creature was doing in the film. Now the ending does feel a little abrupt uh but on the other hand i thought it wrapped up pretty nicely uh the film basically is kind of reminds me of like a mixture of like monkey's paw with wish upon <laughs> but much better than both of them here i was surprised at how much i liked this film and my only christmas film on my list that's for sure and my rating for this is an eight out of ten and this is on shutter so i would definitely if you don't feel like watching christmas movies at this time of year uh, at least put it on your wish list and watch it next to next Christmas. I think you'll dig it here. All right, so now we're on to my top five of the year. In my number five film, this is one, I'm not even going to say I'm surprised. I'm going to say I'm shocked. I'm just downright shocked that no one on any of the podcasts, I, th I think I've heard probably seven or eight end of the year podcasts, Exploding Heads, The Horrorcast, and Jamie and Brian, No More Room in Hell. Uh, there's a few others I can't remember off the top of my head, but anyway, I've, seen, I've, I've heard at least eight different podcasts, uh, end of the year podcasts, and no one's even mentioned this film. Uh, so it's, it's mind blowing to me because I absolutely love this film. It's another slasher film and it is, there's someone in your house. This film is directed by Patrick Bryce, who is also the director of Creep and Creep 2, which those, those films are fucking awesome here. Now, here's a synopsis here. Makani Young has moved from Hawaii to a quiet, small-town Nebraska to live with her grandmother and finish high school. But as the countdown to graduation begins, her classmates are stalked by a killer intent on exposing their dark secrets to the entire town, terrorizing victims while wearing a lifelike mask of their own face. 
With a mysterious past of her own, Makani and her friends must discover the killer's identity before they become victims themselves. Now, when Fear Street came out, it was this huge event. I saw everyone and their grandma talking about it on social media. And when this film came out, it was crickets. Uh, I'm not sure if this film wasn't widely watched or it just didn't end up clicking with people. Maybe this film was released too close to Fear Street. Maybe people didn't realize it was actually a slasher film and they were turned off by the title. I have no clue. I'm just I'm just totally confused why people wouldn't other people wouldn't love love this film. Uh so the film starts off with this definitely with a modern slasher vibe. Uh the gimmick of the killer, as you will, is brilliant. The killer makes a copy of your face and wears it. Uh you know, I don't know what the fuck he makes it out of, but he, he makes it out of some type of paper shit. Uh, I guess stick paper, silicone. Anyway, ends up being a copy of your face, and then uh, it's like freaky as fuck. And then when he confronts you, that means you're going to be killed. So when you see his face and it's you, you know that you're fucked, you're going to be killed. Uh, creepy as fuck, but so damn cool. Uh, it is a whodunit slasher. One of these you have no idea. You introduce to a shitload of characters, and you have no idea who it, who it really is until they get a big reveal, which I think the reveal actually worked. You have this mysterious lead character, Makani. She has a mysterious secret in her past. Uh, her friends, her clique of friends, are all outcasts. Uh, solid actors, man. I really liked all the actors. Really distinct characters. Uh, one of the kids, one of her friends, is this uh, rich kid. His dad is buying up all the property in town, so everyone fucking hates the dad and hates the kid because of that. Uh, our lead... She's having a secret romance with another outcast kid that no one else is friends with. Um, this is a really cool story. Solid, practical gore and kills. There's some really cool kills in the film, actually. My main flaw of the film is I don't think the finale is as strong as the rest of the film. Uh, you know, once you get the reveal of who the killer is, it, there's not much more to it after that. I would have preferred a traditional slasher chase sequence myself. I would have, I definitely would have loved that more. That'd be that's really the only thing that's not a rate making a rate even higher than what I what I have it here. Uh, but yeah, man, it's a fucking fun slasher. If you've never seen it, uh, highly recommend it here. And that's an eight out of ten once again. And it's actually on Netflix. All right, so moving on to my number four film. And this is a film, another film that I heard very few people talk about it. I think I did hear one or two people, but not very many overall. Uh, and the only reason I found out about this film is I was at Walmart checking through what I do occasionally is I go to the Walmart new releases, look at the horror films there. That way I can go look for them, uh, you know, see if they are renting, uh, streaming somewhere or or on a streaming service that I have that I could watch for free. Anyway, I saw this cool looking box art and the film was called The Toll. And I was like, the toll, what the hell is this, man? And I just thought it looked really badass. And sure enough, it is badass. This film is written and directed by Michael Nader. It's his debut feature film. Uh, now, a few years back, I believe about four or five years back, he wrote another film called Headcount about those kids out in the desert. I thought it was a really, really cool movie. And I thought it was a really good script, too. And he's the guy who wrote that. But this is his feature-length debut film, uh, uh, directing though. Uh, this film stars Jordan Hayes and Max Toplin. It is a Canadian production. And here's the uh, syn uh, synopsis here. It's 1 a.m. 
an exhausted Cammy, orders a rideshare at the airport. Her driver, Spencer, is awkward and unsettling. Her destination is her dad's place in the middle of nowhere. Cammy grows increasingly suspicious of Spencer's odd behavior. This fear gives way to full-blown terror when their car breaks down on a secluded road, and they both realize they're not alone. Suddenly, the car comes under attack, a rock smashes through the window, attached to the message, warns visitors, must pay the toll. Cammy and Spencer realize it's a supernatural force haunting them, the Toll Man. <laughs> that was a pretty good uh, synopsis, actually, here. I heard little to nothing about this film, uh, like I mentioned here. Uh, it's hard to talk about this film without spoiling it, uh, but I just love the interactions between the two leads. You have this extremely awkward rideshare driver, whom you're not sure if he's actually the nicest guy in the world or is there something sinister behind him. Not really a spoiler, but fairly early in the film, you realize that there is definitely a supernatural element at play. Uh, it's really cool to see how this mystery played out. Uh, there's some confusing encounters with other characters and people they know. Some of the clues that are spread out through the movie reminded me a little bit of the film Resolution. Uh, and this film has a really cool indie vibe to it. Uh, the camera work and the way it looks, I just, I just, it just screams indie in a good way. Also, maybe because this film is also about a car driving out on a desolate road, but this film oozes atmosphere, reminds me quite a bit of the film Dead End. And that's what I would pair with, is my recommendation for a double feature, is this and Dead End together here. Now, overall, it's a pretty simple story once you get the gist of the plot and what the tall man wants, uh, but it really has a cool, effective ending. Uh, I didn't like the ending at first, but upon a rewatch, I think it worked much better. And I'll be honest, I'm not really sure what they could have done different uh, to end the film itself here. So that was one thing. Uh, this is another film I had fairly high, but upon rewatch, I liked it even more. Uh, so as it's obvious, my number four film, so it's a high recommend. It is, besides purchase it on DVD at Walmart or other places, it is also available to rent on Amazon Prime Video for $5.99. And I think it's worth every penny here. I absolutely love this. It's an 8 out of 10 also. And it is The Toll. Alright, moving on to my number three film of the year. Tommy Dog gonna fuck him up! <laughs> Halloween Kills. Yes, fuck all the haters. Yes, I know the film has some cringy dialogue. Tommy Dog gonna fuck him up! Some people have issues with the mob plot and the chanting. Evil dies tonight, of course. None of that. None of that actually bothers me, though. I actually laugh hard every time. I hear the Tommy, the Tommy Doyle quote here. Tommy Doyle is going to fuck him up. Tommy Doyle going to fuck him up. Man, I just, I, I, the first time I heard it, I died laughing. Every time I hear it from now on, I die laughing here. Tommy Doyle going to fuck him up. I, I actually enjoyed all the new characters. Uh, Lonnie, Tommy, Lindsay, Marion. Uh, I think the 1978 flashback moments were top notch. Uh, I like that it helped, um, especially with the extended cut, it helped flesh out Lonnie's character. Uh, the other new people, Big John, Little John, I thought those guys were fantastic. Uh, my favorite scene in the whole movie by far is the park scene involving, you know, the kids and Lindsay, the nurse, and the, the doctor and nurse couple. I thought that whole scene was really well executed here. And and me personally, I really like the fact that they had uh, Laurie Stroll, Strode was bedridden and didn't do much in the film. 
uh, I think that sets it up pretty well, uh, pretty good for her to do more in the third film. So I kind of like that plot point of that. I actually kind of like that plot point. They did it that way. Uh, I thought, you know, Jamie Lee had enough time in the movie as it was here. I'd, I'd like to see her more in the next film. Uh, overall, I think the film is a good setup for the third and final film, Halloween Ends. Now, is there some flaws in the movie? Yeah, there's a lot of flaws. Like I mentioned, the flaws that a lot of people have don't bother me at all. But I'll mention a few things here that do kind of bother me. Uh, just in general, the bar scene that introduces Tommy when he's giving his speech, I think that's all kind of pretty cheesy. <laughs> I'll be honest. I would have rather had just Tommy and the other characters talk around a table, uh, you know, talking about what happened instead of him giving the speech. I think that would have been... I think that would have been a lot better. Uh, Allison, she needed to be in it more. I didn't think she was in it quite enough. I, I missed her character. She was in it enough to not be a waste of time, but I, I think she just needed more screen time. Uh, also, I liked the third act, but I think they could have edited the ending better. They just, I don't know, you, you know, you go from, I'm going to spoil it because most people are, want to see it, already seen it. But you go from uh, Michael kicking this mob's ass to going upstairs and killing Karen too quickly. Uh, they could have edited more scenes or made it. I don't know. It just it just felt really off. You go from Michael killing these people to all of a sudden he's upstairs. It just, it just wasn't done right. They could have interjected some other scene in between or show that there's a passage of time. Uh, anything could have probably been better what they decided to do here. So I do admit that's fucked up editing there. And, uh, you know, there are some cheesy dialogue and moments, but overall it's Michael kicking ass, gory fun, uh, another, another fantastic kills. Now the uh, soundtrack is not quite as good as the Halloween 18, but it's still a pretty strong, uh, soundtrack. I like the new tracks that Matt Carpenter and his son and the other guy came up with. So, um, yeah. And what can I say, man? I absolutely love Halloween kills. And it gets a 8.25 out of 10. And, uh, of course, you can get it on Blu-ray and DVD. If you do want to watch it on Prime, it's $5.99 rental. Tommy Dog gonna fuck him up. All right, only two more films to go. And these have been my number two for quite a bit of while here. You know, there's no, uh, no ifs, ands, and buts here. You know, when I rewatched both of them, uh, they both solidified their place, number two and number one. And number two for me is Broadcast Signal Intrusion. This film is directed by Jacob Gentry. He helped uh, write The Signal, which was uh, directed by David Bruckner. Uh, here's a synopsis. While logging tapes of decade-old TV broadcasts, video archivist James discovers a surreal and disturbing clip that James believes is a product of a mysterious broadcast signal hacking. Signal hacking. His discovery takes a sinister turn when he tracks down similar broadcast intrusions that send him on an obsessive mission. Now James must confront two very real possibilities, that the videos may be clues to a crime beyond all comprehension, and that whoever behind it may be very aware that James is uncomfortably close to the truth. And I actually totally forgot to write notes on this one, so I'm going to just uh, review this one off the cuff. Um, this film, you know, I hear here another podcast mentioned, I can't remember who, who mentioned it, but another podcast did mention it, that it's really similar in a way to censor from this year. I really like censor didn't make my top 30, but I thought it was a pretty good film and I can see that in a way, you know, censor dealt with the, uh, 
the the video nasties, the editing part of it, and you know this kind of is a similar theme, except for this guy is an archivist and he's watching videos. Uh, so I do see the correlation between the two films and the characters too of what they go through. So those two, so I would say this and Sensor would probably make a good double feature together here. Um, but to get a little bit to the story, you have this guy, you find out that his wife disappeared. He has no clue uh, of where she disappeared to. And while he's archiving these video clips, uh, so I guess the film takes place in the 90s or something. I can't remember, but it is it is definitely a period piece. But anyway, he's archiving video here on the VHS. And while he's uh, archiving it, he comes across what they call a broadcast signal intrusion. It's when someone interferes with FCC uh, signals and they override their uh, the uh, TV signals and someone does some kind of message. And these messages, a guy like with a freaky robot looking mask and he says some freaky stuff. and Just really creepy, weird videos that don't really make a lot of sense but, but are freaky as fuck. Uh, and it seems like every time that one of those videos happens, someone disappeared and he thinks maybe this has something to do with his wife's disappearance. So he's on a mission to find this one the, uh, who's behind these uh, broadcast signal intrusions. And there's one of them in particular that never was broadcast to a lot of people and he wants to try to find it. He ends up encountering this girl that ends up helping him out and not really sure what her role in the whole thing is. It's, it's definitely a mystery film. You don't, you know, everything is slowly unfolded. It's really extreme slow burn film. A lot of dialogue. I mean, actually not a lot of dialogue. A lot of the guy looking through material and trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Fantastic, like jazzy type soundtrack. Yeah, the soundtrack on it is is amazing here. It's really high up in the mix. <laughs> it's really in your face score, which I really like to fit the movie perfect. So yeah, you don't know what the hell's going on, whether he's getting close to figuring out the mystery and someone's fucking with him. Uh, if he's going through some kind of mental breakdown or a combination of the two. Uh, the first time I saw this, I absolutely hated the ending. I thought that was a big flaw of the film. I didn't understand what was happening. It didn't seem like the ending was complete. Like there, like there's a whole section missing. But upon rewatch, I definitely understood the story a lot more, and I saw where they were going, and I kind of had my own theory of what the movie is about. And this one is another one, like the Nighthouse. I went and researched and did some article, uh, read some articles, and one guy in particular, uh, which I'll put it in show notes here, he gives his own theory of what happened in this film and what it means, and, I, and man, it made me really really think and i was like damn if this is a, the true interpretation that the director wanted you to get of this film it's fucking it's pretty fucking brilliant here so yeah man i really liked it more upon rewatch it solidified it's uh i knew i was missing something on it here but reading the article and thinking about it really made me put two and two together and think oh man this is a fucking brilliant film i don't know if i would have if i'd have kept watching it three or four times if i would have picked up on everything I'm not that smart. Try to think of it yourself and read some interpretations. You, you'll, you might get the gist of what the director is trying to say. And anyway, it, it just oozes with atmosphere, fantastic soundtrack, great acting. Uh, overall, though, it's uh, a high recommend, obviously. It's an 8.25 out of 10. And it's my number two film of the year. It is out on Blu-ray, but uh, if you're going to uh, watch it on a rental, it's on Amazon Prime for $4.99. 
All right, now moving on to my numero uno film. And this was easily my number one of the year. I had no doubt from the moment I saw it. I was hoping something would beat it, but nothing ever did. It's just a fucking fun film. It is by none other than a horror master, in my opinion, Mr. James Wan. And it is Malignant. Uh, what can I say? This film just hit all the right notes for me. It's a mixture of a mad scientist film, Giallo, Frankenheimer, I mean, excuse me, a Hen and Lauder, uh, John Wick, Creature Feature, a cop procedural with all that with a supernatural twist. <laughs> all those uh, elements, those uh, kitchen sink elements just blended perfectly for me. I loved it the first time I watched it, and then the second watch just absolutely sealed it for me. The first time, of course, I had no idea what the fuck was going on. But now that upon rewatch, once I knew what the reveal was, I was able to concentrate on other aspects of the film. Uh, film, of course, being with James Wan, it's super high production values. Uh, really cool musical score. If I have any complaints, the main character's wig kind of got on my nerves. There is also one CGI moment of parkour when the cop's chasing the... Uh, Gabriel through the uh, fucking underground thing, and it, I don't know. There's one very, very obvious CGI moment here that looked pretty fake. I thought they could have done something different. That's a minor complaint, though. It's an extremely strong story. The psychic connection, I thought I was awesome. I know some people complain how that made no fucking sense at all. I don't think it needs it needs explaining here. You know, you have. Oh, I'm not going to spoil it here, but I thought the psychic connection actually made sense to me. In a, in a weird way. It's not realistic, of course, but I thought it was pretty awesome. Same thing with the superhuman strength. I, I could buy both of those things could happen in the story. Just a fun ride, though. What can I say? It was great to see James Wan do something different than his other horror films. You know, he does specialize. I guess Saw is different and Descendants, but, you know, there is some supernatural st uh, stuff, of course, when it's his uh, Waterverse films. So it's cool to see him tackle something different here, and he knocked it out of the fucking park here. Uh, now this, if you have HBO Max, it is streaming on there for free. Uh, otherwise, uh, you can buy it for $9.99 on Amazon Prime Video. Or just wait shortly, and I'm sure you can get it on disc. Or hell, it may be, by the time I release this, it may already be on disc. And this film gets an 8.5 out of 10. I don't know, man. I really can't see why people don't like this. I know there's some haters out there. The thing is just extremely poorly made, and... Just laughable in parts, and I, I just don't get it. I think it's extremely well-made film that uh, is awesome. I didn't, um, unless it was intentionally trying to make you funny. There wasn't nothing I laughed at. But yeah, man, it's a pretty fucking awesome film. And that's Malignant by James Wan. Alright, so that wraps up my top 30 films of 2021. Alright, now time to move on to some honorable mentions. These are films that just barely missed a cut. Um, the next five here, basically 31 through 35. Uh, number 31 was The Stylist. That was a very late watch for me. Uh, one of the last few watches that I did. I What is funny is I had started watching it at the beginning of the year. I saw like the first 20 minutes. And then for some reason I couldn't finish it. I had to go somewhere. And then I'd always assumed that I'd watched it. I totally forgot that I never finished it. And then when I started listening to these other podcasts and people putting it on their end of the year list, I was like, how come I didn't like the stylus as much as everyone else? And then I realized what happened that I never did finish it here. 
So I ended up rewatching the stylist, and I did like the film uh, quite a bit, as you can see. It's my number 31, but I think the ending maybe uh, was what brought it brought it down slightly for me. I just think the ending. I like the concept of how the ending was. I just think the ending could have been executed a little better. I'm not really sure how they could have done it better, but I just knew. I don't know. I just saw it coming here as soon as you saw. Well, I'm not going to spoil it here, but. I just saw the ending happening before it actually happened, and I think that maybe if they edited it better or uh, framed it better, it could have been a, a better reveal. Uh, anyway, that was a good film, though. The stylist is awesome. Uh, number 32 is VHS 94, which I'm a huge fan of the VHS series. Yes, even part three that most people hate. I just think this is a great comeback for them. The, what is, I don't, I can't remember, is the second or third story, The Wake is one of the creepiest fucking uh, shorts or shit uh, horror moments in general here. Generally creepy. Probably the creepiest moments in horror film this year is in the wake. Um, but I, I actually liked all four of the main stories. Yeah, the wraparound is shit. They normally are. Part two is pretty bad too. Uh, but overall, as a movie though, I enjoyed every single story, especially the wake. All right, number coming in at 33 was Breeder. Now, Breeder is a film I actually had it pretty high up on my end of the year list. Uh, upon rewatch, though, it definitely brought it down. But it's still, a, as you can see, a really strong film. It's a basically uh, this clinic. They uh, hold these women hostage and they drain them for their beauty products. Supposedly, they can uh, they help rich people stay young lo longer. Uh, now, one of the owner's girlfriends. She gets caught up, uh, she finds out what's going on, and she gets captured, and she becomes one of the uh, the people they experiment on, and she has to try to find a way to escape. Uh, really cool film, gets pretty brutal at the end, and what happens, so yeah, I, I definitely recommend checking out Breeder. Uh, the next one, 34, was Wrong Turn. Uh, I agree with other people that it's not really a wrong turn film, they should have called it The Foundation, and just be a standalone movie. Uh, I still think as a horror movie, though, it's a really strong movie um, strong and a really awesome ending. I love how you got to stay through the credits for sure. I love how it ended here. Now, uh, I'm a huge fan of the Wrong Turn franchise. I personally wish they would go back to continue after part six. I know they're trashy, trashy goofiness of films, but I thought part six was a really strong uh, continuation of the series. I hated five for the most part, but six was really strong, so I just wish they would continue on for part six. I missed three toes and all the other crazy mutants. All right, and then number 35 was Willie's Wonderland. Not much to say about it, just a really fun Nicolas Cage craziness, batshit crazy film. Uh, he was awesome, and the film was awesome also here. So those were my honorable mentions. Now, to break down how my top 30, I uh, put some stats together here, how my top 30 ended up breaking down. And here, here is where you can watch my top 30. Eight of them were VOD rentals. Six of them were Shudder. Five were Netflix. Four were Hulu. Two were on Amazon Prime. One HBO Max. One Showtime. One Tubi. One Epics. And one Bravo Sci-Fi. Uh, so not, not surprised there that, uh, the breakdown of it, I think my biggest surprise is Hulu having four. And like I said, I don't think people 
give Hulu enough credence when it comes to original programming or getting original movies. You know, I know these are not made for Hulu, but they're, uh, you know, uh, do their contract or whatever. They, they get first dibs out of them here. So definitely pay attention to Hulu this upcoming year. I think they're going to continue to do some good shit. Shutter, if you're not on Shutter, you need to get on that. I think most people are on Netflix. And I would say, you know, take a risk on some of these VOD. Like I said, eight of my top 30 were ones you can only get through uh, rentals or purchases. All right, so that's how my top 30 broke down. As far as the, the genre, oh, seven of my 30 were slasher films. Like I told you, it was a fantastic year for slashers. And at least seven were uh, slashers. You could potentially have nine of them, depending on how liberal you use the uh, definition of slashers. But I did have at least at least seven slasher films in my top 30, which is by far the most I've ever had in any year ever. So it was a great year for slashers. And here's how they broke down by country. And I went through uh, IMDb, and it went, you know I don't know how 100% accurate they are, but I went down their list of their productions and where the films were made, what kind of productions they were. And here's the breakdown. 14 of the 30 were American films. Four of them were French films. Three were UK, two were Thai, two were South Africa, two were Canadian, one was a US-UK co-production, one was Indonesian, and one Norwegian film. So that's how it broke down, which is pretty interesting. I knew Americans most likely would uh, roll, since we have the most films by far. Um, French having four, that kind of surprised me. I wasn't expecting uh, that many French films to make my top 30. Uh, South Africa representing with two. It's kind of a surprise. Uh, and, and what's funny is both those South African films, I assume they were American films, but neither one of them were. Um, so, yeah, pretty good mixture of films. And it was nice to see some non-China uh, and Japan Asian films. You know, one Indonesian and two Thai. So three Asian films that normally are represented by China, Japan, or even South Korea, excuse me. Uh, yeah, there's no South Korean film. Well, technically, one of them was a South Korean co-production, I think, the Indonesian one. But for the most part, um, yeah, kind of surprised there isn't a, just a South Korean-only film on here. I don't know. Maybe this upcoming year. But I thought that was an interesting uh, breakdown of how my f uh, movies came out by nationality. All right, now moving on to my hidden gems. And my definition of a hidden gem is a film that... I, in my opinion, I haven't heard much fanfare on, and at least gets a seven and a half or above. And I do have a few of these here. I have three of them I'm going to talk about. The first one is called Initiation. Initiation is a low-budget slasher that's better than it feels that it has any right to be. Uh, <laughs> when what I mean by that is when you're watching the film, it is pretty low-budget, low-budget actors, and you're just expecting shit. But all of a sudden, you know, you're just invested in the characters and. You're like, wow, that's actually better than what I was expecting. You keep going throughout the whole film thinking it's going to get cringy or cheesy, and then all of a sudden it doesn't ever head that way. It, uh, you know, there are some moments that borderline probably on cheese, but um, but overall, man, the film is uh, fast-paced, really fun. It's basically a college camper, college campus murder spree type film. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, definitely the best slasher film that probably most people never heard of uh so that's initiation so i of course recommend that the next two that are on my list i only have two more hidden gems 
Both of them are comedy horror films. Uh, the next one, I would have never guessed it was even decent, to be honest with you. And it is The Manson Brothers Midnight Zombie Massacre. Yes, I know the film sounds absolutely terrible, but the film is an absolute blast here. It's horror comedy done right. Uh, what the story is, it's, uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not too big into wrestling, uh, but it's, I guess, these lower budget wrestling circuits that go around. And these two uh, brothers are fighting on Halloween night, and this virus breaks out and contaminates the audience. Uh, that's the gist of the movie. I mean, there's a lot more to it than that. But there's uh, super fun characters, some fantastic gore, some even really great and funny dialogue. Now, if you're a wrestling fan, most likely you're going to like this movie even more than me because they use wrestling terminology all throughout the film, talking about how they're going to stage the matches, how they're going to have it end. The, the, the uh, dialogue and terminology went way over my head. But I'm sure to wrestling fanatics, they're going to love the authenticity of what they're talking about. Um, what I, All I can say is uh, when I saw this film, I grinned ear to hear the whole movie. There's some really fun uh, comedic moments in it and some badass score. So uh, it's top notch overall. Way better than I ever expected. And that's the Manson Brothers Midnight Zombie Massacre. Um, I think the only no, well, I don't know. There is a couple known actors in there here, but I know one of the uh, the highlights is Randy Couture plays one of the uh, more mature wrestlers in it. So that's pretty cool. All right, and then uh, the final hidden gem is another film I expected next to nothing, and it totally surprised me. And it's called Knife Corp. And the uh, plot of it is these kids they're trained to be door-to-door -door knife salesmen. And one of them gets trapped in a madman's house. And the madman is played by none other than Kate Hodder, finally uh, doing a role using his own face, not wearing any mask or not dressed up as any character. Uh, so basically this kid gets kidnapped by him and the other kids that work for this company and the company owner, they have to try to go and save the kid. <laughs> uh, it's it's batshit crazy here. Great characters, some really funny moments in the movie. Kane Hodder was terrific. You could tell he had a blast doing a, a comedy role. Uh, extremely fun film. The horror element works. The, the comedy element works. So, yeah, overall, it's a thumbs up here. So that's another 7.5. So all three of those are 7.5 out of 10s for myself. So those are three hidden gems that I recommend checking out if you never have. All right, now some, now I'm going to just go some general thoughts on the rest of the year here. Now, overall... It was a solid year as far as ratings. I had 97 out of my 175 films were rated at least a 7 or higher. That's the first time I've ever had that many. And, uh, and uh, Alex uh, Edwards from the Skeleton Crew and Married with Children podcast, among other things, he, he asked me here, he goes, was it worth watching uh, all 175 of those films? And out of the 175, only 20 were films that I would say weren't worth my time, that were a complete waste of time, either hated them or just were blah. And, you know, if you look at it in the big scheme of things, 20 films is approximately a day and a half, or not quite even a day and a half, day and a quarter um, of watching. I guess close to a day and a half. And that's not bad. Out of 365 days, I wasted a day and a half on shit movies. I could do worse. 
other than that here. But uh, yeah, overall is a strong year though. 97 or 7 and above and 155 or at least worth watching to my estimation here. So it was a strong year if you're looking at it that way. Um, now here's some brief thoughts on some other more popular movies that I may not have mentioned that I know other people have liked. For being really similar films, I actually like Candisha just a tad more than Candyman. Both Candisha and Candyman for me were both a 7.5 out of 10. Uh, Candisha is by the uh, the French directors here of The Deep House and Inside. Uh, that was another movie they had out this year, and I, I thought it was pretty strong. I love the creature effects in that film, just really freaky. And, you know, there is a lot of similarities, like I said, to Candyman. It's not as deep as Candyman. I know Candyman has, you know, all kind of themes and messages. I don't think Candisha gets that deep. But for being similar type movies, I enjoyed Kandisha just a tad more. Uh, now, two other films that I, I did like quite a bit. I just thought it was really more of the same or predictable, and that was Don't Breathe 2 and Quiet Place 2. Uh, they're both really well-made films, really strong films. I enjoyed both of them. But like I said, I, in Quiet Place 2, I just thought it was felt a little bit more of the same. And Don't Breathe 2, even though it was different, it just felt a little bit predictable in ways. Uh, but I enjoyed them both. Yeah, they're both strong films. Uh, Conjuring 3, that was actually a pleasant surprise to myself. I was expecting uh, pretty bad, but it was actually enjoyable. So I would say the same exact thing here about the new uh, Paranormal Activity Next to Ken. That was actually a little bit better than I expected. That was a film that was good, but it just barely missed on being great. There's just a few things they missed out on that could have elevated that. Uh, Titan. Uh, I'm a green of Dave Z. I think it was a really fun film, but it was just too weird. Uh, I think that the film went for weird for weirdness sake instead of going for a logical plot point. Um, I don't know. I've only saw it, seen it once. I may like it better upon rewatch, but I'm in the kind of the Dave Z camp on that here. It's a good film, but I think a little bit overblown. Um, now, get, talking about disappointing films, Blood Red Sky. That was my first disappointing film when I saw it on Netflix. It was a Vampires in Airplanes. Are you kidding me? Uh, fucking love Airplanes as a setting and the whole concept I thought was awesome. But while I was watching it, I was like, oh man, this just feels so familiar and predictable and too long. It was, it was nothing like I was expecting at all. I didn't hate the film by any means. It just was disappointing overall. And what was uh, also disappointing that I hear a lot of people praising is Werewolves Within. Uh, Werewolves Within. Uh, man, that was super disappointing. I did like, of course, the two leads, 18T Girl and the other guy. I thought they were fantastic leads, but every other character in the film was so fucking annoying or, oh man, just terrible. Terrible written characters, not funny at all. I wanted all those fuckers to die. I know that might be uh, the point of the movie in, in, in a way, but uh, I just didn't have a good time watching the other characters in the film. And I thought maybe uh, that was just me. So I went ahead and rewatched this one. This is the only movie I didn't really like the first time that I rewatched, just to make sure I, there wasn't something I was missing. And upon rewatch, I liked it even less. It was just super disappointing. Overall, I just it is one of the most overblown horror comedies. There's so many more, like I mentioned, that are, that are uh, way better than where it was within. Another one on the mention is Psycho Gorman. Uh, I was a little tad disappointed on that. Uh, Psycho Gorman is almost in the same category as Turbo Kid to me. 
a film that a lot of people praise, but I just don't see the appeal. I didn't. Both of them are good films. Don't get me wrong, but neither one of them I thought were exceptional or special. But it's also one-time watch. I, I wouldn't mind watching Psycho Gorman in the future to see if I like it more. But that's how I put it currently is in the Turbo Kid camp for me. A decent film, but overhyped. Now, the biggest disappointment of the year, and this is not even close. No film can be even close to this. And it is Demonic. And some of you may be like, what the fuck is Demonic? <laughs> Demonic is a sci-fi horror film by none other than Neil Blomkamp himself. Uh, when I first heard of that, I was like, I was so stoked, man. I was like, man, a dude that does Chappie, District 9, Elysium. Um, you know, I, I think he's a solid director here. And he's finally doing a horror film about demonic possession and virtual reality shit mixed in. Sign me up. But once I watched it, man, I was extremely disappointed. First of all, it was a terrible fucking story. Uh, really bad story, especially the end of the film. Um, I'm not going to spoil it, but the way they come up with how to stop the baddie in the movie was just ridiculous. Really bad effects, too. Uh, I kind of see what they're going for, kind of like a lo-fi stylistic. Instead of being really strong, expensive special effects, CGI effects, they went more of a lo-fi effect route, and it just doesn't work. It just looks cheap. That didn't work for me, so the story didn't work. The uh, CGI effects didn't work, and the ending was just fucking terrible. Just a terrible written movie. It just felt like it was rushed. Yeah, biggest disappointment of the year by far was demonic but what made my top uh bottom five of the year uh, i'm gonna read those here and to be honest with you i only remember one of these five that's how bad they were but my bottom five starting from the worst is witches of amityville useless humans the canyonlands paranormal prison and aquarium of the dead now aquarium of the dead is the only one of the five that i actually remember it was just so bad it's one of these uh, terrible sci-fi type movies, except for not enjoyable at all. At least some of those sci-fi movies, the CGA is so bad it's funny, but this was just terrible all the way around. So that was, uh, those are my bottom five of the year. So <laughs> if you see any of those come up uh, for free, don't even waste your time. All right, so I guess that about wraps it up here. I really don't have uh, much more that I want to talk about. I think I've pretty much hit on pretty much most of the movies. Uh, if there's a movie I haven't mentioned, you want my thoughts on it, just message me and let me know. But yeah, it was an interesting year. It was a fun year. A lot of fun films. Like I said, fun. Outweighed technical merit overall uh, for the films I uh, liked at least. Uh, let's hope in that 2022 is a stronger year. I'd really love to see some hard hitters, some all-time. Like I want my top five to be nines and above, man. So hopefully 2022 will bring something like that. Oh, yeah, one more film I do want to mention, Antlers. I was highly looking forward to Antlers, but the movie just ended up being okay. It was a, it was a good creature feature film. I think I gave the film a 7.5 out of 10, which is still pretty strong. I just thought the Wendigo lore that they used could have been so much better. It's done so much better in Larry Fessenden movies, for example. I just thought they would... Uh, maybe mix in some of the supernatural supernatural lore into the film better instead of it just being a straight creature feature film but it was a good film it just a little bit disappointing as opposed to what i was expecting all right so if you like this podcast though let me know uh let the dark discussions uh family know and who knows i may be doing these more often on a regular basis i'll definitely always be doing the end of the year shows these are my 
by far my favorite to do. And hopefully uh, I've turned you on to some movies you haven't seen that you can go back and watch. And that's all I got for now. So thanks again, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Philip Perrin and the dark, whole Dark Discussions crew and family, uh, their network of podcasts. So make sure you check out all the podcasts on their network and Dark Discussions, of course. And that's all I have for now. So thank you for listening. Adios. Tommy Dog gonna fuck him up.